in your word. Speak to us today. Help us to understand your word and change us as we continue to live for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. About a year ago, I joined the gym down the road, and when I joined, the gym was offering this free complimentary personal training session. And the poor student in me jumped out and grabbed this opportunity to have a free PT session. I mean, it's free, right? So I rocked up at the gym, and I'm told to warm up on this cross trainer for about 10 minutes at some ridiculously high difficulty. Let me tell you, after 10 minutes, I'm smashed, I'm dead, and I'm ready to hit the showers. And the trainer just laughs and says to me, mate, you know that's the warm-up, right? We only just started. It's, the hardest part is still ahead. This is kind of where we're up to uh, in Nehemiah as we pick it up. Uh, you see, we finished off a couple weeks ago in chapter 6 where the wall had finally been rebuilt. And this is what Nehemiah is really famous for, rebuilding the wall. But let me suggest to you today that the book of Nehemiah isn't about rebuilding the wall. Because if it was, the book would have ended after chapter 6. So what do we do with the rest of the book? You see, the wall is just a warm-up act. It's just the beginning. Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall, and now he moves to rebuild the nation, the people of God. Uh, in chapter 7, as if you look back a bit, there's a genealogy that everyone ignores, but it functions as a turning point in the book. My college principal would absolutely kill me if I skipped past chapter 7. So let me show you really quickly how it functions in the book. Firstly, chapter 7, it functions as a transition in the narrative. Now you see in the Old Testament, genealogies are there for a reason, and it's not just to bore us. In Genesis, if you have a look, they show the lineage of the seed of the woman, but they also act as bookends or transition markers between sections. It says to us, hey guys, we're entering into a new section. And that's what it does here in Nehemiah. The wall's rebuilt, and this is a turning point. We're entering into a new section. Secondly, uh, chapter 7 shows the state of God's people. If you flick back to verse 3, it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, the walls rebuilt, but there weren't many people. There weren't many houses. In fact, if we go back to the time of David, about 500 years back there, were 470,000 men in the army alone in Judah. Except here, the numbers in total are about 50,000 altogether. The nation was a shadow of its former glory, and this was the inglorious return of God's remnant into the land. Thirdly, chapter 7 highlights that this book, it's about people. It's about God's people. It's not about the wall. If it was, we'd probably have a list of 70 verses outlining all the bricks and stones and mortar types that were used on the wall. But instead, we have a list of names that's really handy for any expecting parent having trouble with their baby names. You see, Nehemiah, it's not about the ideal pro building program. It's not about the wall. It's about rebuilding God's people. And you know why? It's because God cares 
about people. He cares about you and me. He wants our church to be on about people, coming to Christ and growing in Christ, working with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus. You see, God doesn't just look at how many ministries we have or how awesome and slick our programs are or how many buildings we have. It's about people. God cares about people. He brought a people to himself through the blood of Jesus. Chapter 7 highlights a turning point, a lack of people, and a God who cares about people. And chapter 8, it begins with people. God's people gathered. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, about five days after the wall is rebuilt, the first thing they do is that they come together and they hold this special church service. And the people tell Ezra to get the Bible so he can teach them. That's like if we only had one Bible in this church and all of us mob Daryl, David's, or Alvin and saying, please, teach us. They even elevated the pulpit into this makeshift stage so that they elevated the preacher and the word of God. I preach for about 25, 30 minutes, and some people say I go for too long. But read here, from early morning until midday, five to six hours, the law of Moses, or sections of the first five books, are read from the pulpit and explained by the Levites in the crowd. And look at how the people respond in this passage. Verse 3, they listened attentively. Verse 5, they stood in reverence when the word of God was opened. Verse 6, they verbally exclaimed. They lifted their hands and bowed to the ground. And verse 8, they understood the word of God. And after, in verse 9, they wept as they heard the words because they understood how much they had sinned against God. And Nehemiah responds by saying, Go your way, eat the fat, my favorite part, and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Basically he's saying, now's not the time to grieve. We've just heard that despite their sinfulness, God is merciful and he's acting for them. He is their strength. And he's our strength too. Some of you may have been in that deep, dark place where all you can hold on to in the mess is Jesus and the promise of eternal life through Jesus. When the words of my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness come out so real. And that's something to be cheerful about for them and for us today. The joy of the Lord is our strength. You see, salvation, redemption, relationship with God, eternity, it's all assured. It's our protection, it's our strength, whatever situation we're in. As Christians, we have real hope in God. We have more things to rejoice about than anyone else on earth. So the people, they celebrate and rejoice in response. And note 
that the rejoicing, it's in response to the word of God. Verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's why we celebrate. We have a God who speaks, and he speaks to us about how he saves us. In this special church service, the passage tells us what's important. Let me ask you, what do the people want to hear? What do they understand? What causes them to weep and rejoice? It's the word of God. It's the book of the law of Moses. God's word is central to God's people. You see, that's what the people wanted to hear. That's what they understood. And that's what caused them to weep and rejoice. And the word of God must be central to God's people today. We actually have it even better than Nehemiah's day. You see, we don't just have the first five books. We have the complete revelation of God. We have the gospel, the saving message of Jesus. And that must be central to us as a church today. It must be central in our services as we sing, pray, read, and hear the sermon. Is God's word always central? Is the saving message of Jesus central? Jesus says in Luke, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And thus, is it, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. You see, God's word points to Jesus. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, they point to Jesus. So that's what we should be focusing on through song and sermon. It should be so central that we're all to walk away from church every Sunday rejoicing. I've understood God's word. That should be all of our mentalities every Sunday. But instead, I think we usually settle with leaving church on Sunday, saying something like, yep, I caught up with my friends. Yep, I liked or hated that part of the service. Yep, I wish that person did or didn't talk to me. When's the last time you responded saying, I understood God's word today, and this feels great? When was the last time you felt like that? You know what I find as the most encouraging thing as a preacher who's still learning? It's when people come up to me and say, Josh, I understand this and that from today's passage. This really spoke to me today. Thank you. That's what I find the most encouraging. I had to ask myself the same question too. When's the last time I can say, I understood God's word, and this feels great? I love to pull apart services, critique sermons, and talk to people about sport after. I need to, you need to, and we need to continue to understand God's word better. Because that's how we grow in Jesus Christ. God's word, with the power of the Holy Spirit, points us to Jesus. What about other parts of our church? Our ministries, life groups, special events, anything and everything we do corporately as a church, is the word of God central? 
in young adults over the past few months, we've moved to make God's Word more central by establishing regular monthly talks. We were bi-monthly before, and now we're doing monthly talks on Bible books or Bible-influenced topics because we want to be a ministry that's on about God's Word first and foremost. But let me ask you, what happens when the Word of God isn't central? We've been doing late 19th century church history at college, and I think this is exactly what happened. The Bible wasn't central, and the teaching in general went off the rails. They went from biblical to liberal, basically anything goes, from grace to morality, a move from freedom in Christ to salvation by works. Pews become empty, churches die, and people don't get to hear about Jesus. In England, there are church buildings that are just dead and empty because over a period of years and decades, the Bible wasn't central. In the States today, there are churches filling out stadiums with absolutely no teaching of the Bible at all in the sermon or even the services. And it would break my heart to see Sunnybank look anything remotely like this. Let's revel in the grace of God revealed through his word. In this turning point, in this rebuilding of Israel, the word of God is central. And it must be central in our church today. And when it is central, we see how God's word changes God's people. This morning I heard on Facebook that my nephew took his first walk this morning. It's pretty awesome. God's word changing us is like a Christian standing up and walking. You see, the Bible needs to be central and the people need to understand God's word clear before God's people are truly changed. C.H. Spurgeon says, the more you read the Bible and the more you meditate on it, the more you'll be astonished by it. You see, the people, they were so astonished by God's word that in verse 13, if you have a look, the leaders and the fathers, they wanted more. So they came together for Ezra's special Bible conference. And while studying, they incidentally come across Leviticus 23, which outlines the Feast of the Tabernacles. Remember, this is the seventh month. Uh, for the Jews, it's a special month. The first day is kind of like New Year's. The tenth day is the Day of Atonement. And the fifteenth day begins the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I reckon Nehemiah is a really smart project manager because if we look at Garden City, the upgrades might finish late. Building and construction projects always drag on. And the new signage in our church is way overdue, and that's partly my fault. But the wall is rebuilt in record time, 52 days, so that these special days can be celebrated. So the leaders and the fathers, they read this, and what do they do? Every pastor's and leader's dream, they obey. Verse 15, they all went home and they told others how to obey. And the beauty of this is they all followed God's word. Verse 17, 
And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua son of Nun to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. God's word changes. The feasts hadn't been celebrated properly for over 900 years since they entered the promised land. Joshua entered and there was celebration. But over time, they just didn't follow it. They didn't understand the significance. God's word wasn't changing them. And now the people, they return to the promised land. God's word changes them and there's celebration and remembrance. And this is what the feasts signified. They remembered God's provision during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. You see, the people, they acted like idiots. They rebelled. They sinned. But God was still faithful. He was gracious, merciful. He provided. And they looked forward in this feast to a day when God will save them in the future. They look forward to the Messiah, to Jesus, who ultimately saves them and us. So the people they read, they understood God's word is central. And now they just want more of God's word. They even hold a week-long summer school, and they read through the whole Pentateuch without skipping numbers. Verse 18, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The people, they followed in obedience according to God's word. They read, they understood, and they obeyed immediately. The feast was followed flawlessly. God's word changes them. When's the last time God's word changed you? Does it still change you? Do you even want to be changed and obey God's word? You see, Nehemiah only had the first five books, yet they were able to understand God and the gospel. God the creator, our rebellion, God's saving mercy, and looking forward to a Messiah. And it changes them. They obeyed. But today we have the full story. We know how it all ends. We know that the Messiah is Jesus, our Savior, dying and rising again for our sin. God's word, this good news, what Jesus has done for them, if we truly understand it, the gospel will change us. We might not have booze and live in them, but we're called to live in the light of what Christ has done for us. So I want you to think of the last time God's word changed you. When you read and understood a passage and it had a profound impact on your life. If you can remember it clearly, and it's recent, that's great. But if you're struggling to find something and you're grabbing on thin air, then maybe you need to get back to Bible 101, to Jesus 101, to even go back and smell the fresh air of what Christ has done for you. You see, we're all sinful people, continually transforming into the likeness of Christ. And God's word through the work of the Spirit is how God changes us. Over the past two weeks, I've had a new Christian uh, homestaying at my house. From what I've heard, he used to hang out with drug dealers in nightclubs and 
was in a real dark place. He's been robbed a couple times, and he's had so many run-ins with the cops that they know his face. But about a year ago, he started going to church. He started going to Bible study, and slowly but surely, he's understanding God's word, and it's changing his life. Almost straight away, he stopped hanging out with uh, these people and going to these places, and instead he hangs around church people. He goes to Bible studies. He even asks for rise to church because his license is suspended. He moved out of his old place and to ours because his housemates were just doing ungodly things that kept stumbling his walk with Christ. But he's not there yet. He's a new baby Christian. And on Thursday night, just before he moved out, uh, he came up to me and said, Josh, I know being a Christian must be real. I see so many people change because of it. And then he said that there were some things in his past life that he's still trying to change. And we chatted, and at the end, he said to me, Josh, I'll keep reading God's word. I'll keep going to church and Bible study, and I hope God will continue to change me through his word. You see, whenever we open God's word, we need to expect God to challenge us to live for Christ. Because when God's word, when truly understood, when the gospel is taught, it changes people's lives. And that's what it did in Nehemiah. They obey the Feast of the Tabernacles completely. When God's word is central, it changes people's lives, and it also convicts people of their sin and God's faithfulness. It's not surprising that if we jump to chapter 9, verse 1, we find another Bible-centered service. The people come dressed to reflect their state before God, and they corporately confess their sin and the sin of their fathers. Verse 3, if you have a Bible. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. We find three hours of Bible reading and another three hours of confession and worship. And verses 6 to 37 probably give us the best summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. I mean, you can read these verses and pretty much get the whole gist of Genesis to Kings. And there are two major threads here. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read through the whole thing. Uh, hopefully, we'll cover it more next week, but let's just fly through it quickly. I think the summary reads like uh, me or any kid growing up at home. As a kid, I was a handful. I, was, I had a big temper, and I always whinged about everything. And my parents, as parents are, they were always loving and they never seemed to give up, I think. <laughs> the first thread is confession. Uh, the first thread in this confession is God's faithfulness. And he's like the dad who never gives up. I mean, look at all that God does in these verses. Verse 6, God creates and preserves creation. Verses 7 and 8, he chose Abraham. He made a covenant and promised because of Abraham's faithfulness, not works, and he keeps his promise. 
verses 9 to 15, 19 to 25. Have a look. God saves a people for himself. He provides for them both physically with bread and water and spiritually with a law of how to live in response to a God who saves. And he leads them into the promised land. And the second thread here is the people. And they respond terribly, I think. They sin and they rebel against God. Verses 16 and 17 and then 29 and 30, they disobey. They did not obey. They rebelled and they sinned. They even look back and say that the whole exile was the people's fault in verses 35 and 36. They're a messed up people. They fall short of God. God's word convicts God's people, their sinfulness and their faithful God. And when both of these threads intertwine, it highlights the gulf between people and God, the goodness of God despite a sinful people and a people who didn't deserve anything. And that drives us, the people, into this time of confession. They're so convicted that they make this decision in verse 38 to trust God, and we'll hear more about that next week. So as we see God's faithfulness to Israel, and as we read God's word today, you know, we've actually seen God's ultimate faithfulness You see, the Israelites, they saw God work in all these ways, definitely highlighting God's faithfulness. But the ultimate sign of faithfulness is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're not too much different from the Israelites in this story. We sin, we stuff up, we fall short of the glory of God. We rebel, we disobey, none of us are perfect And the God described in Nehemiah is still the same God of today. He's ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's word convicted the Israelites of God's faithfulness and they responded by confessing their sins and putting their trust in God. And God's word convicts us of the very same thing today. God's faithfulness in the work of Jesus Christ. But do we respond by confessing our shortcomings and putting our trust in God? That's where God's word drives us to, convicts us of. But do we really put all our trust in Jesus? Here's what I think we like to do instead. We firstly, we either hide our shortcomings, like avoiding an angry parent, We're not trusting in God when we do that. Or we promise to make it up. We confess it, but we use our works and our merit to balance it out instead of turning and trusting God. God is a faithful God, and we're just sinful human beings, as we heard last week. And that's what God convicts us of in his word. And we need to cast our whole selves onto Jesus We need to trust what he's done on the cross for us. Sin for righteousness, death for life, condemnation for compassion. In Nehemiah, the war's been rebuilt, and now the nation of God's people needs to be rebuilt. We see God's people put God's word as central in their lives. And once this happens, they're changed by God and are convicted by God's word. 
Through this, they see God's faithfulness, their shortcomings, and they trust in God. And today, we have the complete Word of God. It's got to be central in our church and our lives. Its role is to change us, to live for God into the image of Christ. And it convicts us of God's faithfulness in the work of Jesus. So will you, whether Christian or non-Christian, young or old, will you put your trust completely in God? Would you put your hope totally in Jesus? You see, that's where God's word takes us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks. And through your word, you speak to us about your faithfulness, your mercy, your love, your grace. Help us to put your word in the center of our lives and our church. Help us by your spirit to understand your word, to be changed and convicted by the gospel. Help us to trust in Jesus, in your faithfulness. And remind us constantly through your word of all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.